Hebrews chapter 10, beginning where we left off in verse 19, the writer of Hebrews will speak of the life of faith and he's going to issue a glorious invitation. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of son, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. The chapter began with a contrast and then it continues with with a challenge, a series of challenges. We're a challenge to approach the throne of God in verses 19 through 22. To advance the people of God in verses 22 through 25. To avoid the judgment of God in verses 26 through 31. And acknowledge the faithfulness of God in verses 32 through 34. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the sacrifice of Jesus takes away our sin in verses 1 through 10. It was an effective sacrifice in verses 5 through 20. It's an unrepeatable sacrifice in verses 11 through 18. It provides us access to God in verses 19 through 39. And now the writer is going to engage in a little review. We're invited to consider all of the blessings we as believers have because of what the Lord Jesus has done. What his once and for all sacrifice has accomplished. Because we are chosen, because we are adopted, because we are accepted, because we are perfect, not imperfect, because we have perfect standing with God in Christ. We have boldness. The word literally means freedom of speech. To approach God, to enter into the presence of our Heavenly Father. The barriers that once separated the children of God are gone. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle skins and veil masked the glory of the presence of God inside of the tabernacle. And when the body of Jesus was offered in sacrifice, it became a type and a picture. His body tearing. The veil in in the temple torn. A new and living access is given. A new covenant provides access to God for every person, 
every believer, every person who puts their trust in Jesus. And so the writer's explanation in verses 19 through 21 will give way to an invitation in verses 22 through 25. We're invited, number one, to draw near instead of drifting away. We're invited to hold fast our confession of faith. Or as some translations have it, our testimony of hope. Refusing to waver in trial or collapse in the face of trial, persecution, temptation. And we're invited to consider other believers and by our example encourage them to remain true to the faith and true to the Lord Jesus Christ we provoke each other but remember we are provoking each other in love so boldness in heaven that's freedom of speech should lead to boldness on the earth that means freedom of speech here the early Christians were faced with unspeakable trials and unrelenting persecution and economic distress. And because of that, they would sometimes neglect the assembling of themselves together for worship and teaching and service. And because they would neglect the opportunity to provide Mutual encouragement and mutual edification. They found themselves more and more and more distance from what the Lord had done. And so we're, in, we're extended the invitation to draw near in verse 22. To enter into the presence of God. And the writer of Hebrews continues that glorious exhortation. Hold fast to your confession of hope, verse 23. Provoke each other to love and labor and good works, in verse 24. So again, let's begin in verse 19. Look what it says. Let us come into his presence. Hebrews 19 Verse 19, therefore, chapter 10, verse 19, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Need I remind you that the Old Testament Jew couldn't enter into the tabernacle. Priests could go into the, into the tabernacle in the wilderness. The high priest could go into the tabernacle once a year on the day of atonement. The sacrifice of Jesus provides a living way into the very throne room of God. Think about what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We can come into the presence of God at any time. This is the privilege of access. And like I said, boldness is freedom of speech. But it's more than just freedom of speech. In the military, sometimes an under, a a, a person who is a subordinate will, will, when they're speaking to a superior officer, they'll say, permission to speak freely. And that's exactly here, the meaning. It's the permission to speak freely without fear of retribution. So what has been wrought by the sacrifice of Jesus? 
Complete satisfaction and payment for sin. What has been sought by the sacrifice of Jesus? Shadows have been replaced by substance. What has been taught by the, by the sacrifice of Jesus? We can come into God's presence. And so what is this holiest? Remember, this is the place where the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle and then in the temple in fullness and power. Let me help you. Imagine again, I could take all of you with me back in time. And we find ourselves in the wilderness with the children of Israel, with the tabernacle. And you see the encampment of the children all around the tabernacle of the Lord. And imagine a Moabite or a Canaanite or an Egyptian or some foreigner comes up. They ride into the camp. And as they're riding into the camp, they see this strange tabernacle, this this strange tent in the middle of nowhere. They see smoke coming out of it. They see priests going in and out. And imagine the Moabite says... What is that? And you say, that's the tabernacle of the Lord. Well, what's inside of there? Well, there's a lamp. There's a large lamp and there's a table and there's an altar made of pure gold. And the man that you just saw go in there, he's a priest and he'll trim the lamp and he'll place the bread on the table and he'll burn the incense to the true and the living God. It will be a picture of the types of the prayers that we pray to God. And beyond that, beyond that, there's a veil that divides the tabernacle. We call that place the most holy place. And the Canaanite says, what's in there? And you say, there's a box. We call it the Ark of the Covenant. It's made of hammered pure gold laid on top of acacia wood and there are two cherubim and on top is the mercy seat and he and on top of that mercy seat the very presence of God dwells and the Canaanite says I wish I was a Jew and the Jew says hey you know what I'm a Jew and I don't get to go in there Well, I wish I was a priest. Well, priests get to go, but they don't get to go all the way in. Except for the high priest. And he only gets to go in once a year. And can you imagine if he said, I wish, I wish, I wish that I could go into... I wish that I could talk to God anytime I wanted to. What will it take for me to get to go into this place? How can I go in there? How can I go in there and speak to God? And what's the answer? You can't go in there. As a matter of fact, if you were a Moabite, you're you're cursed to a hundredth generation. Not only could you not go in there, but your children couldn't go in there, and their children couldn't go in there, and their children's children couldn't go in there. You can't go in there. Think about what this writer is saying. 
Every person, every single Jew and every single Gentile, every single person who comes to God by faith in Christ has access to this place. Imagine you have the unspeakable privilege that you can go to God and speak to God, not on your terms, but on his terms, because Jesus Christ has died for your sin. And that's what it means in verse 20, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us. Through the veil that is his flesh. In other words, the payment that was made in order to give you the privilege of access to God is his sacrifice. Remember what we've already talked about. That when Jesus died on the cross, he made a way for you to go to heaven. So what's it going to take for me to go to this place? You have to trust Jesus. What is it going to take for me to remain in this place? It's going to take Jesus. What will it cost to enter the place? The blood of Jesus. The cost is Calvary. And in verse 21 it says, In having a high priest over the house of God, the veil is the incarnate Christ. The veil is that barrier that separated men from God. I want you to see the picture that the writer of Hebrews is saying. If you were to look at Jesus, if we went back in time and space, you would look at Jesus and you would say, he looks like an ordinary Jew to me. He's got Jewish hair and a Jewish face and a Jewish look about him. Everything about him looks fairly human. Fairly ordinary. If you were to look at the temple or you were to look at the tabernacle, the external temple was beautiful. The external tabernacle veiled the presence of God and the flesh of Jesus veiled, if you will, the incarnate deity. But in his death, his flesh is torn and the majesty and dignity of the identity of who he is is ripped away. God demands a sacrifice. And he demands absolute perfection. God's statement throughout the Old Testament and in the tabernacle was, I demand a life. I demand an absolute perfect life. And Jesus lives that life. And dies that death. And you have access to God. Not simply on the basis of his perfect life, but his substitutionary death and having a high priest, not over a temporary tabernacle. In verse 21, where it says, and having a high priest over the house of God. In verse 21, the house of God here is a reference to you and me. What Peter talks about when he talks about that we are joined and fitted together, living stones that make up the tabernacle of the house of God. You are the house of God. Jesus is your high priest. And so, 
What's the proof of our access? The proof is that Jesus has entered that place. The proof is that he has already gone to the Holy of Holies. And because Jesus is there, remember what we've already learned. We can be there. Remember what Jesus says to his own disciples in John chapter 14. I'm going. And if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I go, you will be also. You will go where Jesus will go. He is our high priest over the house of God. Jesus is our necessary sacrifice. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And by a sacrifice for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 8.3 and offered sacrifice. He offered himself, Hebrews 7:27, a removing sacrifice. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9:26. It's an accepted sacrifice. Christ has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, Ephesians 5:2. A substitutionary sacrifice. Christ, our Passover, a sacrifice for us, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus is that celebration. And so, we are allowed unprecedented access, perpetual access, permanent access. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says you can come boldly. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews is telling Jewish believers, welcome, welcome, welcome to the holy of holies. Can you imagine showing up at the tabernacle in the Old Testament Or at the temple in the New Testament. Can you imagine being there and all of a sudden someone said, come right in. Come right in. No problem. Here, make your way in. Go through the tent flap. Go past the furniture. Go right into the Holy of Holies. Do you understand how radical this concept is? Particularly for the Jewish person who says, I'm a Jew, I'm born a Jew, I'm raised a Jew, I'm educated a Jew, I've been a Jew my whole life, my father was a Jew and his father was a Jew. We never got to go into the tabernacle, we never got to go into the temple. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, you have permanent, complete, perpetual access. Why would anyone... Why would anyone opt for a religion where the access to the presence of God was denied? Now all of a sudden you begin to understand what you're reading. The Jewish person who says, I'm going back to Judaism. The writer of Hebrews is saying, why would you do that? You have access to God through Christ forever. And so having said that, the real challenge then becomes for us, why in the world wouldn't you want to pray? Why wouldn't you want to go into his presence? Why wouldn't you want to reveal your heart? Why wouldn't you allow your father to give you everything that you need? And so look what he says, let us draw near with pure hearts in verse 22. Let us draw near with a, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Think for a moment. What is our privilege? Access. Access to who? To God. How? Through Christ. What is our confidence? Assurance. Now, again, this assurance isn't assurance in you. It isn't because you're a good person or because you go to church or because you read your Bible or because you give things to the poor. You have assurance because your unqualified assurance is in the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Have you ever wondered, how do I know God will accept me? The right answer is God won't accept you apart from Christ. How do I know God will accept me? Because the Bible says the father accepts the son, accepts the sacrifice of the son. How do I know God will accept me? Because you've accepted the son and the father has accepted the son. And when the father accepts the son, he accepts you. I don't know if you've ever been in a family where there was a lot of drama. And somebody marries somebody. And people are disappointed. How could you have possibly married that girl? How could you possibly have married that guy? Well, mom, dad, I need you to accept him. I need you to accept her. Well, we, we don't accept them. But I've accepted them. And... Now we're a team. If, if you're going to accept me, you have to accept him. Can you imagine being a mother and a person says, I accept you, but I don't accept your children. Mothers aren't that way. It's a package deal. And this is a package deal. So what is our responsibility? Well, think about what the writer is saying. We have unqualified access We're sufficient in Christ, apart from works, apart from religious rituals, apart from church attendance. What's our responsibility? We're required to worship. Let us draw near. Where? To that holy of holies. How? With pure hearts. In what sense? Full assurance of faith. In what sense? Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. In what sense? Remember what your conscience is. It's that part of you, inside of you, that completely motivates you to do what's right. Your conscience is a moral organ. I've told you over and over again. In the book of Romans, it talks about your conscience either accusing you or excusing you. Your conscience is that thing inside of you that says, do what's right. Do the right thing. Do what's right. Do the right thing. Your conscience being sprinkled from an evil conscience, your conscience saying, there's something wrong with you. There's something really wrong with you. You're really messed up. Your past is messed up. Your life is messed up. Your family's messed up. Everything about you is messed up. But Jesus washes your conscience so that your conscience is sprinkled in what sense? 
sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus. In what sense the dark stains of the evil conscience is covered, causing the cries to be muted. Our bodies are washed with pure water. That is, we are cleansed. And so there's this picture. The picture is purification on the inside and purification on the outside. We are conscious of our condition and conscientious about our condition. We understand that God requires a pure heart, not an empty heart, not a, a religious profession, not some sort of religious game. And so it's not a religious game where you show up to church carrying your Bible in the hopes that people will accept you because you look religious and act religious and talk religious. But the writer of Hebrews says none of that matters. What matters is that you've been washed. You've been cleansed. Now I want you to think about what you just read. The writer of Hebrews has told us to come. Jesus invites us to come. We can be cleansed when we go to him. There is physical and spiritual cleansing. This isn't just simply some sort of junior high school reference to personal hygiene. This is the idea of spiritual cleansing based on the sacrifice of Jesus and our assurance of faith causes us to draw near. So what are the conditions? A pure heart, a true heart, not an empty heart, full of assurance with a clear conscience Because you're living a pure life. That's the idea. So he says, let us draw near with pure hearts and let us hold fast. Look what it says in unshakable faith in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Our assurance of faith in verse 22 causes us to look forward in hope. Again, you need to understand what a radical concept this is. For the most part, Jewish people were invited to look backwards. To look back in time to the promises of Abraham. To look back in time to the promise made through Isaac and then Jacob. To look back in time to the supernatural liberation from Egypt. To look back in time of the gathering of the nation. The wilderness wanderings. The occupation in the land. To look back in time. The writer of Hebrews says, no, you, this isn't about simply looking back. This is, this is about looking forward, not to the old ways and the old covenant, but a new hope to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The person who's truly saved, the person who's truly regenerate, the person who's experienced the washing and cleansing by the blood of Jesus and the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't look back. 
but looks forward. And there can be no wavering. In the New Testament, it talks about being tossed to and fro like a ship on the waves. The Lord, and and so this is the reason the writer of Hebrews gives. Look, we can hold fast to the confession of our hope. For he who promised is faithful. The writer of Hebrews is basically saying this. You can stand firm in a confident, right relationship with God. How? Because God is faithful. God who made a promise will keep his his promise. So why should we waver in our confession? Our confession of hope is our testimony concerning Christ's salvation in our life. In the early church, they would go through a series of examinations. It was called catechisms. People would have teachings And they would teach about the life of Jesus and and the ministry of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. The early church father Augustine wrote, quote, The faithful must believe the articles of the creed so that believing they may obey God and by, by obeying may live well and by living well may purify their hearts and with pure hearts they can understand what they believe. In other words, Augustine made it abundantly clear look this thing that we learn about Jesus we do so not just so that we understand what the Bible says but so that we can understand what God wants from us that we can obey him and by obeying him we live well and by living well we purify our hearts and when we have pure hearts we can understand what it is that we believe Irenaeus was born in Smyrna in what's modern Turkey. It's called Itzmir. He was a disciple of Polycarp. And you may not understand how that works, but let me help you. John, the apostle, who was a close companion of Jesus, was the the bishop, if you will, or the overseer or the pastor of Calvary Chapel at Ephesus. So he's the pastor of the church, And John has a disciple. His name is Polycarp. And Polycarp has a disciple. His name is Irenaeus. And Irenaeus lived between about, he was born in about 130 AD and he died at about 202 AD. But he wrote a thing called the rule of faith. And Irenaeus wrote this. This faith in one God, the Father Almighty, who made the heaven and the earth, And the seas and all the things that are in them. And in one Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation. And in the Holy Spirit, who made known through the prophets the plan of salvation. And the coming and the birth from a virgin. And the passion and the resurrection from the dead. And the bodily ascension into heaven of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord. And his future appearing from heaven in the glory of the Father, so some up all things and to raise anew the flesh of the whole human race speaking of a future resurrection within three generations from John to Polycarp to Irenaeus the historical repetition occurred over and over and over again the statements in the Bible are true everything that you've heard about the Bible is true when the Bible says that these things are true they are true and they were passed on to the next generation and they were passed on to the next generation and I'm passing them on to you 
And you see, we live in a culture and a society that doesn't really believe that the Bible is true. There was a little boy who came to his father. And he said, where did we come from? And the father said, well, you know, God made Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve had children and their children had children and their children's children had children and then their children had children and then their children's children had children and eventually we, are, we came here. And he went and he asked his mother and said, where did we come from? And his mother said, well, you know, there was an electrical storm and, and mud and, and the electricity caused chemicals to combine with amino acids. And so these amino acids formed some sort of conglomerate. This conglomerate somehow came alive and then it created all these different species. And then throughout the evolutionary process, these species became uh, lower life forms, which became higher life forms, which eventually became monkeys, which eventually became us. And he goes back to his dad and he says, you lied to me. You said that God created us. And mom said, we, we evolved from apes. And, and his, his father said, look, look, she's talking about her side of the family. <laughs> no wonder it becomes so confusing. Because people are looking and they're wondering where can I know the truth? The psalmist wrote in chapter 40, verse 10, I will speak of your faithfulness and your salvation. In Revelation 2.10, Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death. George Horn wrote, when men cease to be faithful to their God, he who expects to find them faithful to each other will be much disappointed. You can imagine the, the confidence in the early church and the admonition in the early church was, guess what? God's been faithful to you. So you can be faithful to him. We might say it this way. Remain faithful to God in order for you to be faithful to one another. The poet John Milton wrote, among the faithless, Faithful only he, among innumerable false, unmoved, unshaken, unseduced, unterrified, his loyalty he kept, his love, his zeal, nor number, nor example with him wrought to swerve from truth or change his constant mind, though single. It's the poetic way of saying... Living among a bunch of faithless people, he remains faithful. A bunch, a, 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 among a group of people who are being tossed and turned to and fro, is there anyone who is going to embrace a singular confidence that the Bible is true, that the testimony of the Bible is true? John Piper writes, the Lord rewards faithfulness above fruitfulness, which puts us all on the same footing, whether famous for our effectiveness or unknown in our faithfulness. You're going to be evaluated. Not on how famous you are or how gifted you are. 
you're going to be evaluated on how faithful you are. Faithful to what's been entrusted to you. No wonder Teddy Roosevelt was fond of saying, it's better to be faithful than to be famous. And so now the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider one another. In verse 24, he says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We're Christians. We have access. When he says, and let us consider, that word in the original language, in the Greek language, is a word that meant to pay close attention. So we might read, let us pay attention to one another. It can even mean fix our attention. Another way of saying it is watch over. And so when he says, and let us consider one another, this consideration, this concern, this care is something that you don't do from a distance. You do it up close and personal. One believer encourages and helps another believer. (laughs) I don't know what world you grew up in, but... Much of my young life was spent with my grandmother, as many of you know. My, my mother and my father were very, very young, and they were very, very immature, and they didn't really know how to raise kids. And so most of my life was spent with my maternal grandmother and my paternal grandmother. They would drop me off all the time. Both of them had one thing in common. They would say, are you stirring up trouble? You all know what that means, right? If someone says to you, are you stirring up trouble? We know exactly what they mean. But what does the writer mean when he says to stir up love? We know how to stir up trouble. How do we stir up love? It means to provoke. It means to provoke in such a way, or motivate in such a way, or demonstrate in such a way, or activate, if you will, in such a way, goodness and grace. In this particular instance, love isn't just some warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up inside of your stomach. This is the kind of affection, if you will, that is filled with the knowledge that you're willing to do what's right in any given circumstance toward the person who needs help or hope. We know that actions speak louder than words. We know that well done is better than well said. And that's what he's talking about. He's not just simply mouthing what it means to have friendship or fellowship or relationship or affection. He says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. This consideration for one another is supposed to prompt real interaction. By the way, in the New Testament, that phrase, one another... How many times do you think it appears in the New Testament? Ten times? You'd be wrong. Twenty times? You'd still be wrong. 
50 times, you would be closer but still wrong. That phrase occurs some 70 times. Love one another. Encourage one another. Minister to one another. Be kind to one another. We consider one another. We strengthen one another. We help one another in trial and temptation. We, we help to ensure health and holiness. We feed the poor. We, we visit the sick. We offer help to widows and orphans. We provide friendship to the lonely. We provide purpose for the people who are living their lives in what seems like absolute purposelessness. Have you ever woken up one morning and go, what in the world am I doing on this planet Earth? God, why did you stick me here and why did you place me with these people? And you wonder what your purpose is and you wonder what your life is all about. For the people who are struggling for meaning and purpose in their lives, you might be the one person who's able to say to them, your life matters. God made you. He created you. You may have grown up in less than ideal circumstances. You may have been victimized on any number of different levels. But God knows the truth. And God knows your value. And God knows that as Christians in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, you know on Sundays we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you remember Jesus when he said, let your light shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to provide love and help and support and encouragement You see, this is the truth about mutual ministry. It can't take place by yourself. And so I think that when he says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, he's talking about not just simply in the context of showing up at church. He's talking about real relationships that you form as you get to know each other. Paul told The Romans in chapter 12, verse 6, and then again in verse 8, that we all have different gifts according to the grace that's been given to us. That if your gift is the gift of giving, then give liberally. If it's encouraging, then encourage. People need encouragement. One person said, correction doesn't, does much, but but encouragement does way more. But you may have found yourself in a group of people who, for whatever reason, all they seem to do is be able to find fault, find weakness, find failure. If you've ever played tennis, there's two sides and there's a net. And right at the net, there's a judge, and he sits on a high chair. And this judge, when a ball goes out of bounds, the judge says, Fault! You got it. But how do you get to be a judge? 
Usually, hopefully, judges in tennis mat matches are people who have earned a reputation of understanding the game, and they're noted for their impartiality, and they're known for their fairness, and they're known for their ability to be fair no matter what is happening on the court. But a lot of the times, people in our lives aren't fair, and they haven't earned the right to say, fault. People need encouragement, like crops need rain. And it may sound corny, but the best way to get a chip off the shoulder might be to give a person a pat on the back and watch the chip fall. We offer a hand instead of a pointing finger. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, The really great man is the man who makes every man feel great. And again, I'm not talking about some sort of encouragement absent the gospel, absent grace, absent the sacrifice of Jesus, or absent the realization that sin is a real problem. In verse 25, look what it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Again, we're back to the context. Who is this book written to? Hebrews. What were these Jewish people who had been exposed to the gospel, what were they doing? They were forsaking the assembling of themselves together. Why? Because they were under constant pressure. Because they were in unrelenting persecution. Because there was horrible pain. Because there was serious sorrow of trial. And because of this unrelenting persecution. Because of this ongoing pain. Because of this sorrow of trial. It caused many of them to abandon fellowship altogether. And you've probably known people like that. Maybe you've even been that person. I can't go to church. Why? My life is a mess. My family's a mess. You don't understand the, the pain and the sorrow and the unrelenting trial and the persecution that I've been under. The fiery trial had caused the fire of fellowship to wax and then wane and then for some to neglect and then abandon fellowship. And I'm going to suggest to you it's more than just a Sunday morning where the preacher gets up and he preaches a sermon and we sing some songs or we have a Wednesday midweek Bible study. The kind of intimacy that he's talking about, the forsaking of the assemblings of themselves together is, is the manner of son, is, is this kind of mutual ministry that has to take place not simply in the context of, of church proper, but in the sense of real involvement in each other's lives. Our trials were never meant to drive us apart, but to bring us together in mutual ministry. We're to exhort one another. Storms make a strong tree. And testings make a strong Christian. And the command is imperative. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It's one actual word in the original language. That one phrase is one very long Greek word. And it's used only here and one other place. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Here, it's talking about physically forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it's, it's talking about the assembling together that Paul writes about in the future in which we're caught up together in the air to meet the Lord. It's a, one is a gathering on the earth, the other is a gathering in the air. In, in, in 2 Thessalonians it says, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together, same word, to him, our gathering together to him, we ask you. That's a reference to the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. The implication being, We gather together here in part because one day we will gather together there. Our lot is with each other here. We will have a future together there. By the way, in the early church, it would seem that Christians seem to have gathered at least weekly according to Acts chapter 20 verse 7. There's this interesting letter that has come down to us from Pliny, who was a Roman governor in the area that you and I would call Turkey. He gives a second century description of Asian Christians, and by second century, I mean like 131 AD. He writes, on an appointed day, they, speaking of Christians, had been accustomed to meet before daybreak. And to recite a hymn antiphonally to Christ as to a God. Then they would take an oath, Latin, sacramentum, which is what this letter is written in. To abstain from theft, abstain from robbery, abstain from adultery, and every breach of faith. And after this ceremony they left, but then they would reassemble together to eat together, unquote. When Pliny is writing this, he's writing it to the emperor Hadrian because he's asking for Hadrian's advice on how to deal with these people. And the information that he's getting aren't from people who have stayed with Christ and stayed with the church. This is the description that's given by people who chose to abandon the church and leave the fellowship. Who were willing to renounce their faith. And so when the writer of Hebrews talks about Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It isn't just simply a command to go to church. It's an exhortation of mutual ministry in light of dark days of trial, temptation, difficulty, So what's the value of mutual ministry? According to the writer of Hebrews, remember, we have unprecedented access. We can draw near. 
we can speak of our mutual testimony and our confession of faith. We're given permission to encourage one another and to minister to one another and to provide for one another and to pray for one another. We assemble for worship, for prayer, for the study of God's word, for mutual encouragement, care, and concern. There's a place for preaching and corporate ministry. But there has to be a venue for mutual ministry. And you see, this is one of the reasons why small groups become such an important part of the life of any given church. Your small group might be a men's group, or it might be a women's group, it might be a student group, whatever it happens to be, whatever kind of fellowships, a, a way that you can gather together, that you can form friendship, that you can form relationship, that you can provide mutual ministry for one another. And so when the text itself says, seeing... The day, the imperative, consider one another, stir up love, the incentive, as you see the day approaching. What day do you suppose that is? Is this the day of the coming of the Lord? Is this the day of judgment? I'm going to suggest to you that I think, I think it's the day of Christ. It's talked about in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. It's called the day of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1 8, and also in Corinthians 1 4. And in other words, for the Christian, as you see that day, the day is that day when Jesus is coming back for you and I. And, and, and again, the Bible seems to indicate that the end times are going to be marked by an ever-increasing amount of trials, ever-increasing wickedness, ever-increasing pain, ever-increasing persecution. Even now, Christians are being tortured in, in Saudi Arabia, in North Korea, in Turkey, in Pakistan, in e- India, in Egypt. You can go online and you can find a list of 50 countries where Christians live in constant threat, unbelievable hostility. Christians are deprived of justice. Christians are imprisoned. Christians are tortured. Christians are murdered. In the 20th century, more Christians died than in the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth Fast forward through every single century. The presence of pain, the presence of persecution, the presence of trial, the presence of tribulation was never, ever meant to keep Christians apart, but to bring them together. And as the darkened as the darkness deepens all around. This is what the writer of Hebrews is is basically saying. As the darkness starts to roll in and it becomes impenetrable and it becomes difficult and it becomes even more difficult. The writer of Hebrews is saying, if ever there was a time for you to stay together, it's now. If ever there was a time for you to continue in fellowship, it's now. We cling together. 
We resist social pressure and economic pressure and entertainment pressure. Why do people forsake the assembling of themselves? Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes people fear being seen with other Christians. Some people fear criticism. They, they fear contempt. Perhaps conceit. Some people feel that they don't need church. I've talked to not, not simply hundreds, maybe thousands of people over the last 40 years. Why aren't you in church? I don't need church. I don't need church. I don't need fellowship. I don't need encouragement. And in their conceit, they imagine that the hypocrisies of the church exceed the hypocrisies of their own selves. Shallow, immature, foolish Christians imagine church as a place where they go to get something instead of be someone. They imagine that they go to church to get something when in fact the Bible says we being joined and fitted together are a mutual body in need of one another. It never occurs to them that the faults of the church and the failures of the church and the deficiencies of the church are evidence that we need gifted men and gifted women exercising their gifts for mutual ministry. We've been invited into God's presence We've been invited into God's love and then invited to encourage each other and exhort each other and provoke one another in mutual ministry. Gregory the Great, who lived from about 540 AD to 604, was admired by John Calvin in his institutes. And he wrote of him that he was the last good pope. Gregory wrote, beloved men, realize what is true. This world is in haste and the end approaches and therefore in the world things go from bad to worse and so it must of necessity deteriorate greatly on account of the people's sins before the coming of the Antichrist and indeed it will be dreadful and terrible far and wide throughout the world, unquote. He's writing this in the 5th century A.D., Things are, we've got some problems. And the problems are sufficient that you might be tempted to run away. But the admonition in every generation is this isn't the time to run away. This is the time to stay together. Casting Crowns has a song. Some of you might know it. They talk about Joy unspeakable, faith unsinkable, love unstoppable, anything is possible. We draw near to God, verse 22. 
We hold fast our confession and profession in verse 23. We stir up each other to love and good works in verse 24. We refuse to forsake corporate worship and corporate prayer and personal worship and mutual ministry because this is what will make you healthy. Why would you want anything else? We're going to have communion in just a moment. But let's pause. We're going to hand out the elements. What I want you to do is just hold on to the elements until we all have an opportunity to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, When we look at (laughs) what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. That Lord we can come into your presence. We can draw near with pure hearts. Lord we pray that we would take this opportunity to examine our hearts. And like the psalmist said. That we would look deeply. That we would see if there's any wicked way in us. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are willing to forgive us in Jesus, accept us in Jesus, cleanse us in Jesus, provide access to us in Jesus hope in Jesus, giftedness by the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus so that, Lord, we can participate in the ministry that you've entrusted to us. Lord, I pray for that person who is still estranged, the person who's still empty, the person who's still broken, the person who's still hurt. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Fill them with a supernatural love. That you would tell them in no uncertain terms how much you love them and care about them. That you're willing to forgive them. And then provide for them. Not just now, but forever. In Jesus' name, amen.